1: Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce.
5: If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right
4: hand, and please repeat after me, I do solemnly swear. We the jury in the above entitled action find the defendant guilty of the crime.
5: It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. We all took the same oath
4: of office. We are all bound by that common commitment to support and defend the Constitution, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and to faithfully discharge the duties of our office. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth,
3: the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? From Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway.
2: The reason why we have free public education is because we want to create productive citizens. We want to teach children how to contribute to the communities. We also want to teach them about how to manage conflicts. We are trying to keep our society going. So the way that a system provides education to its children is symbolic of what it expects from its children. If you are a six-year-old, and this has happened, who is handcuffed at your school for throwing a temper tantrum by a police officer and booked. That school district, that community, our society has made a very clear statement about what we expect from her. You wouldn't expect to hear that happening to a preschooler because who would do that to a preschooler Who would do that to a child? We value children. We recognize what our time and energy invested in them will mean, but that isn't nearly always the case with black children.
3: Hi everyone. Today, we're going to talk about the ways prejudice and even racism can factor into the American justice system. This of course is a huge topic, but we've had the pleasure of working with the Georgia Innocence Project to hear about their cases and the ways that they see racism and prejudice play into the legal system and society as a whole. People are working every day to fight these biases and to create a more perfect system, but like all of the topics we cover on this show, we aren't there yet. And I hope the stories and the experts you hear from today will help shed at least some light on this particularly troublesome aspect of the justice system. We spoke with an exoneree here in Georgia, Calvin Johnson. Calvin shared his story with us, his story of being held in prison for 16 years for a crime that he did not commit.
5: My name is Calvin C. Johnson, Jr., and I'm the 61st person to be exonerated in the United States of America, the very first person to be exonerated in the state of Georgia through DNA technology. I was uh, charged with the charge of rape in Clayton County and Fulton County, Georgia, back in 1983. These counties sit side by side, and these rapes took place with a close proximity of each other. Similar transaction, they were positive that the same guy committed both crimes.
3: We asked Calvin how he got involved in this case in the first place. Why did police think he was a suspect?
5: My dad said I opened up the can of worms and I put myself in that position. What happened to me was not right, it was wrong, but I wasn't a perfect individual and I had some run-ins with the law and I had committed a burglary, and that's how I got on the radar. It's nobody's fault but my own. I made a mistake as a young man, and <laughs> believe me, I, I learned from it. <laughs> on the day that they arrested me, I remember it was a beautiful day. It was in the spring, and I was coming home. I had been to work that day, stopped by the gym, and and I was living with my parents at the time. So I'm walking up the street, and my mom drove by. I jumped in the car and she gave me a ride. And I went home. And no sooner than I got inside the house, there was a knock on the door. I felt a little strange. Even when I got in my mom's car, something felt strange that day. Just something didn't feel right. And as soon as I got in the door, there was that knock. And it was like, doom, 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 doom. I got rushed by police officers, thrown on the floor, handcuffed, and they took me off and threw me into a cold, dark, damp cell by myself. I had no idea what I was being charged with until the next morning. And then they told me they said you're being charged with the charge of rape, and I was basically shocked and surprised because I'm like, hey, I didn't rape anybody. I figured I said, well, they're gonna realize they made a mistake. They're gonna let me go, and I'm gonna go home. Just a matter of time. At that stage in my life, I basically believed it just. I brought up in a middle-class family, a middle-class household. My father used to be a—he uh, was a first black state senator in Ohio. He was also a lawyer. My mother worked at the college. You know, I thought, hey, you know, that everything was gonna be just fine. But it didn't happen like that. They put me in a live lineup person picked out somebody else. So I had an affidavit to that effect. So I'm thinking, wow, okay, hey, I'm going home now. I mean, I got all the science. But No, it still didn't let me go. So then they had another person that came in. It was after they had several people and this last person supposedly picked me out. It seemed some kind of strange, in my opinion. They went ahead and took me to trial in uh, Clay County. And first of all, we had a preliminary hearing. That's when they asked questions, my lawyer asked questions like, how was Mr. Johnson identified? The lady who was the victim, she said that, well, it was identified from photographs. He asked, well, what kind of photographs? Were they color? Were they black and white? And she said that they were color. So later on, the police officer came in, asked him, said, well, did you show, The victim, a series of photographs for identification purposes, and he said, "Yes." He said, "Do you have those with you today? Can we see them?" And he pulled out a series of black and white photos. I'm like, "Wow!" I'm sitting there shaking my head, saying, "Okay, I know they're gonna let me go now. They're gonna realize they made a mistake, but it didn't. It didn't happen." I was wearing a full beard back then. She didn't say anything about a mustache. I had a mustache here since I was a teenager. What's going on here? This is back in 1983. In nineteen eighty-three they weren't using DNA technology. So the blood sample came back O positive. I believe that's that's the most common blood type there is. You might be O positive, and guess what? They say you're guilty because you're O positive. But the hair samples came back. And they did not match me. They matched somebody of African-American ancestry, but they did not match Calvin C. Johnson, too. So I'm like, hey, I'm all over again, like, whoa, I'm going home now. I mean, I get all excited. But they still don't let me go. They indict me. Now it's coming time to go through the jury selection. They had maybe three Blacks uh, that they could have selected, give or take a little. But, of course, all of them were struck. So I ended up with an all-white jury, and the victim was white, and I'm a Black man. What are my odds? What are the chances? And I tell people all the time, if it had been an all-Chinese jury and it would have been a Chinese victim, or all-Mexican jury and a Mexican victim, what are the odds? The odds are totally stacked against
3: you. Striking jurors because of the color of their skin or any protected attributes like gender or race is a huge problem and a big example of the ways that bias and prejudice can creep into the criminal justice system. Everyone is entitled to a trial in front of a jury of their peers, and it must be a fair and impartial jury. The concept of peers means that you need to account for diversity. There are now methods in place, a type of check called a Batson challenge, that can prevent a biased jury like the one Calvin had, and we'll go more into that later in the episode.
5: They didn't listen to anything, it was an emotional thing, you go to court, you get in there, I have all this evidence toward my innocence, I have alibi testimony because I was at home with my parents. My employer comes and he shows my employee ID and testified that I had a full beard. Fact after fact after fact was brought out. But it didn't make any difference because it's that, that one dramatic moment when they say is the person that committed the crime in this courtroom today. And if so, can you point that person out? And of course, they turn around, they had a tear coming down their cheek, and they point directly at me and say, he's the one and the jury found me guilty. I was sentenced to life, life in the Georgia Penitentiary. Then a year later, I did go back to court again for the Fulton County case. Cause remember I said there were two cases and in Fulton County, it was exact similar case. And I got on my stand and, and brought up my character and everything. And they brought up the fact that I already was convicted and so the odds were totally against me now. But there was so much evidence pointing toward my innocence. This jury here, which I had a makeup of seven blacks and five whites, came back with a not guilty verdict. But even though they came back with a not guilty verdict, I'm still in prison for Clayton County.
3: For this case, I spoke with Molly Parmer a lawyer and board member for the Georgia Innocence Project. She's familiar with Calvin's case and can speak to the ways she sees bias and racism play out from a legal perspective throughout the justice system and in Calvin's case in particular.
6: My name is Molly Parmer. I am an attorney in Atlanta and I serve on the board of directors for the Georgia Innocence Project.
3: I asked Molly what inspired her to start working on wrongful conviction cases.
6: I was really shocked at the fact that wrongful convictions happen and the prevalence with which they happen. I was a young impressionable law student and you go to law school thinking you're gonna be part of what they call a justice system. I ended up going into what's essentially at the time a small cramped basement office with a bare bones staff and hardly any resources. And we were tasked with identifying and communicating with potentially wrongfully imprisoned men and women in the criminal justice system here in Georgia and in Alabama at the time. We covered both states. I think it was pretty harrowing to realize how many potentially wrongfully imprisoned men and women are behind bars. The estimates are are somewhere between 3% and 5% of all people who are incarcerated are wrongfully imprisoned. I think the system operates from a history of structural racism. Well, we see these racial disparities in the system, but they're all a product of this legacy of racial injustice that essentially started with slavery and this idea of a racial hierarchy. There was a belief that Black people essentially were inferior and they benefited from slavery. Even after the the formal abolition of slavery, this thought persisted into convict leasing and this idea of African Americans being presumed dangerous, being presumed to be criminals. And so what we see now in our current legal system is that the idea of the burden of proof or the presumption of innocence applies totally differently based on race. We see that people of color In particular, African-American men are presumed guilty. They're presumed to be criminals from the time they're children. We see disproportionate stops, frisks, arrests. We see in sentencing that these men are sentenced to far longer in prison than are their white counterparts convicted of the same crimes. And I think the way that we over-incarcerate disproportionately affects communities of color as well. There's a huge collateral effect to communities and that can't be discounted either. And when it comes down to exonerations, roughly 13% of the U.S. population is black, roughly 40% of the prison population is black, and almost 60% of all DNA exonerees are Black. I think that Calvin Johnson's case is a great example. And what we saw in his case is something that we see far too often. Essentially, it's a case of eyewitness misidentification. Something that we see, I think, in about 70 percent of DNA exonerations. But of those 70 percent, 41 percent involve cross-racial identification. And Calvin's case is a prime example of this.
3: We looked at eyewitness testimony and the problems with cross-racial identification in the last episode. And Molly is right it is one of the most common attributes in wrongful conviction cases everywhere.
6: Calvin was considered the suspect, the prime suspect. And I think what we saw in his case was devaluation of human life. It it was a rush to judgment. And we see that with individuals of color on a level that we don't see with white people in America there's a quickness with which he was identified and the finger was pointed at him and and he was gonna go down for these crimes despite a patchwork of partial identifications. Similar to Calvin's case, in Louisiana, 30 of their exonerees had trials of less than one day. So we see an incredible swiftness in convicting young men of color. The brevity of that kind of procedure shows just how careless we are. And I think what it shows is that a lot of these men, when you really think about it, it's not as simple as they're targeted because they're Black. They're they're targeted because we don't care who the actual perpetrator is because he's Black. We, as a society, have not moved away from this idea that inherently, if you're African-American, you're dangerous. And so a suspect standing before a jury or a judge who's African-American almost satisfies this inherent bias and allows us to render a verdict
2: start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily
0: to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
1: mother's day is right around the corner and in true she pivots fashion we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers
3: I asked Calvin about the impacts of his conviction on him and on his community.
5: It was it was hard because it broke my family's heart, it broke my mother's heart. A couple of months after that happened, she just, she had a stroke. It, it was too much strain on her because she couldn't believe it. It was hard on my family financially, file appeals and so forth. And there I am sitting down to one of the hardest working camps in the state of Georgia. I call it institutionalized slavery. You call it what you want. But it's all it is, is a form of institutionalized slavery. It was a dangerous place to be. Nobody at this camp had less than 20 years. And we used to work all around swamp waters, and this is in South Georgia. And you can't even eat your food because gnats cover your food before you can put it in your mouth. And I'm seeing moccasins, I'm seeing rattlesnakes. It was a violent society that I was forced into. I had to make adjustment. I had to be tough. It hardened my heart and it changed my attitude. And I wasn't probably the nicest person in the world at that during those years. Because I had a lot of frustration inside of me. I mean, there was nobody who I could really talk to about my emotions. So years go by, years go by. I remember. You know, they wanted me to get into this program called the Sexual Offender Program. Being involved in the Sexual Offender Program might be okay for somebody who's a sexual offender. But in order to complete this program, they want you to sign an admission of guilt. Now, I just came to the conclusion that I'd rather die. I'd rather die in prison than just to walk out. I would not have a life at all.
2: My name is Ebony Howard. I'm a senior supervising attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I work in Alabama focusing on issues related to criminal justice reform, specifically juvenile justice. Our work tends to focus on the impact of the justice systems on black and brown people and other people of color.
3: Ebony Howard is also the voice you heard at the beginning of the episode. She and the organization she works for, the Southern Poverty Law Center, raise awareness about prejudice and hate crimes across the country. Ebony's work has a strong emphasis in juvenile law, so I wanted to speak with her about the ways the legal system is set up to interact with some children more than others.
2: The justice system as it operates is a continuation of a system of slavery, using Black bodies towards capitalism even after you have the civil war you still have a backlash to it and then you continue on and black people go from being enslaved to sharecroppers and then you have the civil rights movement and so there are definitely gains there but if you see enslavement is still happening in some form or the other because even once civil rights are established and black people can vote and women can vote Miraculously, you have a prison system that is overwhelmingly filled with Black people and also brown people. And you see that Black and brown people are getting sentenced at different rates. How is it possible that Black people and white people can engage in the same conduct, but yet Black people get longer sentences? It is because that same value system that says that Black people are other Black people are inferior carries through because it is woven throughout our history. It is woven into the American fabric. People say, well, Black people engage in more crime than white people. Latinx people engage in more crime. The answer is that Black and Latinx people are targeted far more than white people. We see that over and over again. We see that with stop and frisk. We see that with the charging practices of district attorneys. The reality is that you can't say that Black people are more violent because the data bears out that people are being charged for the same acts, but getting different sentences. And the same thing with our education systems. Why is it that when you look at the presence of police officers in mostly white schools or integrated schools, you see that the officer just kind of stays tucked in the back and you don't really see him or her. But in mostly black schools, the officers are there to police students themselves, not protect them, but to police them. That is because when the establishment looks at black children, when the establishment looks at black adolescents, They don't see children, they don't see teenagers, they see criminals. And so we train throughout this education system for incarceration.
3: I asked Ebony to explain this idea called the school to prison pipeline and what it means to be exposed to the justice system at a young age.
2: I have met children in high school who were arrested and maced and booked for getting into a fight at school. Years later, I encountered that same kid at like age 17 in a adult jail. I see the pipeline, I see how it moves and I see how the way that this system is run, the way that the values that it's based on directly impact Black people. I wish people knew what it means for people to be involved in the justice system. So the collateral consequences of being arrested. Even if your case doesn't go anywhere, if it's dismissed, if it's a fluke, if you are arrested and fingerprinted. The state has your identity. They have access to you. Every time a criminal act occurs and they're looking for whoever did it, you are in the pool of people that they will go to first. Apparently, we have decided that the way we want our justice system to work is that we don't just lock people up. We have to punish them so the punishment isn't just being locked up the punishment is whatever comes with being locked up so you'll hear people say often listen they get what they get that is the consequences of breaking the law you see let me be clear about what the actual consequences are in a Alabama prison right now somebody is being raped somebody is sick because they have diabetes or some kind of chronic illness and they are not getting the care that they need. They are dying. There is a 17-year-old in a jail seeing foul, horrible things that will forever change his or hers brain. When you talk about they get what they deserve, The punishment is having your liberty taken away from you. The unseen punishment that people don't allow themselves to imagine is just absolute torture. If people were to allow themselves to imagine it, like to play it out in their head like a movie, they wouldn't be able to live with it. And I feel like that if more people did, they would understand how something drastically has to change with the way that we run this justice system. In Alabama, there are a couple of ways that kids can be tried as adults. One of them is called transfer. It is when a child under the age of 17 can be charged with anything. And if the prosecutor makes a motion then the juvenile court judge can consider that motion and then transfer that child to the adult court. In making the decision about whether or not a child should be transferred to the adult court, the judge has to consider a set of factors. But one thing that's listed there is the child's demeanor. So when you talk about something like demeanor, You've opened the door for all kinds of biases to live out their lives. So he's there because he's accused of doing something wrong. Perhaps he doesn't want to make eye contact because he's scared. And the way that his fear manifests itself is to look down. And the way that his fear manifests itself is not to speak up and he's wearing the clothes that he's wearing because that's what everybody in his neighborhood wears. He comes from a cultural context that the judges and policymakers who are in positions of power don't understand and fear. And so he's in this situation where you're expecting a 14-year-old to translate for you who he is when you're the adult in the room. Like, you are the one charged with ensuring that you don't do harm to this person. The people who are supposed to be thinking about how to best serve, not just kids, but people who are involved in the justice system, people who are involved in social services systems, those people who are running those systems cannot get out of the ingrained racist biases to see people for people.
3: I wanted to hear more about the effects of the justice system on youth and what happens when young people are put in the system early on. I spoke with Ashley Wilcott, a juvenile court judge in DeKalb County, Georgia, about the ways she sees racism in her work with youth.
4: I'm a child welfare law specialist. I've practiced juvenile courts for many, many years. I now serve as a judge in DeKalb County Juvenile Court. I do a lot of consulting and speaking nationwide a lot about the education behind our child welfare system. A lot don't understand it, aren't familiar with it, and so my goal is really often to educate about it. So, I just want to share a few statistics to set the stage. So as you all probably have heard or know, the United States has the world's highest incarceration rate in the world, right? Nobody's probably surprised to hear that. There's clear racial impact as a result of that. 70% approximately of Americans incarcerated are non-white. Average American, I think it's one in 20 chance of ending up incarcerated. That's the average American. If you break it down into race, Latino was one in six rate of incarceration or chance of going to jail. African-American was one in three, and then the white average was one in 23. Those numbers apply equally to youth who are tried as adults. The good news is juvenile incarceration rates have been declining. And from my perspective with criminal justice reform, that's a good thing. So for instance, between 1995 and 2010, the juvenile incarceration rate dropped by 41%. So that's significant. But if you compare that to school discipline policies and what you see happening in the schools, that's going the other direction. So for instance, since 2000, the number of school suspensions has increased by about 10%. So you're seeing in schools that the discipline policies are increasing what happens to these kids and increases how these kids then touch the criminal justice system as a result of what's happened in school. As of 2015, and this was five years ago and it's still true today and it's it's staggering to me that this is true in our society, but it is black students are three times more likely to be suspended or expelled than white students. Especially when you take that into account with the fact that studies have shown kids who are suspended are more likely to either be held back a grade or to drop out of school. And when those things start happening, kids, they need to have purpose and be busy, start getting into more trouble, even if it's You know just school pranks or something they think isn't that bad they get arrested they go to juvenile detention it starts that process of ending up in the pipeline to prison you know the thing that i really see that bothers me is uh, i'll just give an example there's been a lot of shoplifting i've seen a lot of shoplifting cases um in the last i don't know year to two years i really feel like when they get arrested The way they've been treated at the mall as a group of kids is different if they're African-American versus even if they are Asian or Caucasian, right? Like there's this whole approach to me that feels very, very different in terms of these are bad kids and we have to arrest them versus it's bad behavior that kids are engaging in. thing that infuriates me, the not the most, but pretty high up there, is when you see these little kids who have been through all kinds of trauma act out in a school environment, and then you see them get tasered, or you see them actually getting arrested with the handcuffs, or you see them thrown to the ground and they're half my size. They've been through things you could never probably imagine, and as a result, we need to respond in a trauma-informed way so that the response that they get can help them de-escalate instead of escalating and ending up in the system.
0: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days.
3: Here's Calvin Johnson explaining how he finally found a path towards exoneration.
5: I got to the point where I felt like I was just about to snap. Like I was about to almost lose my mind. Like a rubber band being stretched. And then later on I heard about DNA technology. I said, DNA? What? Some guys have gotten out based on DNA technology. There was a guy that used to come into the prison named Jim Bonner. He was a Prisoner Legal Counseling Project. And I told him my situation. I said, you don't have to believe a word I said. He said, let me just give you my transcript and you read it. He said, man, this is the worst case of injustice that I've witnessed in my entire time of the legal profession. They didn't have a law to preserve evidence at that time. And they were actually going to destroy the evidence. And somebody, for whatever reason, changed their mind and they kept the evidence. So he filed an extraordinary motion for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence, which means that DNA technology didn't exist. And now this is a new technology that could possibly prove that I'm innocent. And if that's possible, I should be given a new trial. And then they defunded the project. So I spent time writing letters and writing letters to different people and different organizations seeking help. A friend that I grew up with, when I was a child, wrote me about the Innocence Project in New York City. And they looked at it and they said, wow, this is unique. Here we got one jury that gives one verdict, another jury that gives another verdict. It's like putting two rats in the cage and doing an experiment or something. The evidence was tested and they almost used all the evidence up and it came back where it was inconclusive, basically. They were tell me, he said, Mr. Johnson, you got a choice. You're just wait till technology gets better five, 10 years from now and retest what's left because there's such a small amount. It's probably going to be used up." He said, but there's one other option. He says, there's a guy in California named Dr. Blake, one of the best forensic scientists in the country and maybe in the world. And he said, we can send it to him, but the choice is yours. I said, send it to Dr. Blake. And he came back. In November of 1998, showing that it was impossible that I could have committed a crime based on DNA technology. Now, all of a sudden, they want to do their own test, state of Georgia. So they want to send it to the GBI lab and do their own test. They do their own test, and guess what? The results come back the same. I mean, from the very beginning, I told them that, that with God as my witness, that you know, one day the truth will come out. And in 1999, June 15th, the truth came out. I walked out of that prison a free man and began a new life. Started my life all over. And guess what? I got out and had to pay bills.
3: <laughs> I asked Calvin if he believed that racism and bias impacted his case and helped cause his wrongful conviction.
5: I do. I do believe 100% that race had 100% to do with with me being arrested. District attorney. He was very powerful in this position in Clayton County at the time. And it's like they could care less about me as an individual. It's sad to say, but I think because I was Black, I was look down as being less less of a human being. And so they didn't care. felt like a palm on the, on the chest set being pushed around. And I said, how can people just take and devalue my life, play with my life like this? But He knew that in Clayton County, he could get a conviction. Clayton County was predominantly white. The victim was white. He knew there was no doubt, no matter what evidence I had, what showed that I didn't commit the crime, that he could get a conviction anyway. From there, it was just an uphill battle. Having a culturally diverse jury is so important because then you have... Different people, male, female, different ethnic backgrounds. I think the trial would be a lot fairer, I know. And the perfect example is the fact that here I am, I get found guilty in one county by an all-white jury. I get found not guilty in another county by a jury makeup up of seven blacks and five whites. And if that's not proof, I don't know what else can be any more proof than that. Our government especially designed the system over the years to degrade and humanize Black race. It's sad because they done it with films and movies, they done it with laws, two strikes and three strikes you out. And now they got people incarcerated for marijuana, With busted with a nickel bag. Now they got life sentences. As I said earlier, I stated institutionalized slavery, modern-day slavery. They got privatization, private prisons now. That's a big profit-making organization. Guess what? You need people inside. So what happens? You arrest people. You come up with laws to increase the amount of people being placed in prisons. And it's a free labor force. It's 2020, but things, have they really changed that much? It's still going on. I mean, there's been progress. There's been some progress, yes. But prejudice still exists. Racial injustice still exists. You know, we all bleed the same blood. We're all human beings. We just need to make it fair. And we need to make it a justice system, not just us.
3: I asked Molly Palmer from the Georgia Innocence Project if there were ways her organization encourages people to take action against racial bias and all sorts of prejudice in the justice system.
6: You know, we have to be vigilant in terms of knowing who our elected officials are. We have to elect those people that that have a demonstrated record of caring about these issues. And I think we have to continue as jurors, as citizens, to realize how important our role is in the community and in the legal system. And if you get called for jury duty, I hope that people walk in there no matter who is sitting at defense table, understanding the importance of reasonable doubt and what it means to prove somebody guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. And to take that job so seriously and examine yourself, examine those feelings when you see who's sitting there and your first question is, do they look guilty? That's the instinct. And if you say yes, why? I think we can start by being incredibly critical of ourselves And realize that nobody's perfect. And all of us have experienced some type of racism directed toward us, or we've felt it and didn't want to admit it. We're not in post racial America. It's 2020, and we see horrible, harrowing things every day that highlight the violence and the inherent suspected criminality that we see in terms of people of color, and we can't move past that until we critically examine ourselves.
3: I wanted to just touch again on how vitally important jury selection is in the criminal trial process. It's important to have an unbiased and even a diverse jury Calvin's case is not the only one where racism and racial bias have played a role in jury selection. He's not even the only one in Georgia. A man named Johnny Lee Gates from Columbus, Georgia was recently released from jail after a trial all the way back from 1977 where he sat judged by an all-white jury. The prosecutor in his case systematically struck every single black juror from the pool. In 1986, the United States Supreme Court decided the case of Batson versus Kentucky. The Batson case held that jurors could not be struck simply because of their race. This ruling came after both Johnny Lee Gates and Calvin Johnson's trials, but it is something all new lawyers now learn about in law school. It's so important to have a diverse jury with all kinds of backgrounds and life experiences to weigh in on these important matters of life and liberty. Whenever I have a trial, I keep an eye out for any biases that could come into play on either side for jury selection, and all lawyers should use Batson challenges to call into question strikes made by the other side when necessary. To speak to the school-to-prison pipeline, I just want to say that the legal system is like flypaper. Once you're in it, it's very hard to get out of it, no matter how hard you try. Recidivism, or people returning to the justice system over and over again, is very common. Complicated and difficult probation and parole requirements make it hard to stay out of the system. All of these things have a huge impact on families and communities. We need a system that treats everyone fairly and doesn't over-involve one group or another for any reason, including the color of their skin. I hope you take Molly's advice to heart and look at who your local elected officials are. They are the ones who can most directly change the way our system works next time on sworn
5: you know you're manipulated by people it's even my parents you know my parents never believed i was actually innocent of the crime people ask me do you forgive them of course i do when you're manipulated by a power and a justice system that is supposed to be the last of the line is supposed to be the true sense of justice the true sense of what's going on at least as close as we can get it Uh, i can forgive anybody that has been manipulated I can't forgive those that did the manipulating.
3: Sworn is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Radio. Our lead producer is Christina Dana. Executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright for Tenderfoot TV, Matt Frederick and Alex Williams for iheart Radio, and myself, Philip Holloway. Additional production by Trevor Young, Mason Lindsay, Mike Rooney, Jamie Albright, and Hallie Beadall. Original music and sound design by Makeup and Vanity Set. Our theme song is Blood in the Water by Layup. Show art and design is by Trevor Eiler. Editing by Christina Dana. Mixing and mastering by Mike Rooney and Cooper Skinner. Special thanks to the team at iHeartRadio. From UTA, Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer, Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa, from the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, and Station 16. I'd also like to extend a very personal and special thanks to all of our contributors and guests who have helped to make all of these episodes possible. You can find Sworn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sworn Podcast. And follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, on Twitter at philhollowayesq. Our website is swornpodcast.com and you can check out other Tenderfoot TV podcasts at www.tenderfoot.tv. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at sworn at tenderfoot.tv or leave us a voicemail at 404-410-0441. As always, thanks for listening.
5: I'm walking around. I see an armadillo. I almost jump out my boots because I've never seen an armadillo before in my life. It's it's running across in front of me looking like a, a giant rat with an army helmet on or something. I'm like, what the heck is this?
0: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy Taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now.